So sometime late in college, I first heard the quote. I'm, I realize I'm a latecomer to a lot of these things, but I first heard this quote that was often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It seems so right, like so freeing. So it was a really amazing corrective to, I had kind of gotten into this evangelistic faith and it was really obsessed with proclaiming a message but not nearly as good at integrating this message into each crevice of my life. You know, each, it, it, it wasn't so concerned with creating this whole Jesus way of life. It didn't seem to nearly have the imagination for the ways that justice and, and beauty and, and mercy also preached the good news of Jesus. But there's two problems with the quote. First, it's doubtful that Francis said it. <laughs> Don't let that shatter your faith or stop your journey on like kind of forming this, this life that so completely looks and feels and communicates its self-giving love of Jesus that words just kind of seem like a caption to, to this thing that people are beholding. Like if that's, that's where you're on and that's what you're doing, by all means, continue that. But Francis was also a really good preacher, and I would be really mad if I was a great preacher and, and people kind of said, like, his preaching wasn't that great, but, you know, he did some stuff. Someone said about, about Francis, and he's a great preacher because obviously he preached to human beings and, like, every birdbath says that he also preached to animals, right? <laughs> but some human actually said about Francis that his words, this is so great, his words were neither hollow nor ridiculous, but filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, penetrating the marrow of the heart, so that listeners were turned to great amazement. So that's one problem, is he didn't say it. The other problem is I'm not so sure in this kind of action word split. I don't think that's really born out of Scripture. To somehow prioritize actions over words and the preaching of the good news, and remember it's news, it's like, I don't know, turning on the, the nightly news and, and seeing like Brian Williams or Diane Sawyer with no volume on, and they're just kind of like charading the news to you. That would be ridiculous, right? Like, they couldn't tell the news without their words. And of course, bodies matter, and words matter. And for Christians who stake their lives on the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, infleshed words really matter. So why would we separate them or prioritize one over the other? We peek into this story that Gary read early in the book generally known as the Acts of the Apostles. And even that name for a, a letter or for a book kind of tells something. It's got that word apostle that, that sent one, like, like a, a postal man. Um, someone sent with a message. And it's right after Pentecost when they receive the Holy Spirit. It comes down upon them like flames and they, they understand. And again, 
words are important in that Pentecost story because even though they're speaking each in their own language, everyone understands one another. Imagine that in this world where we're so fractured. If, if we, even if we didn't agree with each other, if we could even just understand one another. It's, it's a good uh, reminder then after, after this Feast of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast that Peter and John are headed to an evening worship service at the temple. And this is a Jewish temple. I think in our, we're so far past it, our imaginations are like, sure, they went to their church service. And for some of us that grew up uh, maybe Baptist or something, like they went to night church. And then on Wednesday, they also went to church. And then there was a choir practice. And then there was something else. But they, they went to temple on Sunday evening, they had probably been there earlier in the day, and they passed by this man that they had surely seen plenty of times before. This man kind of sidetracks them on their way into worship. He, he asks them for financial help in this kind of liminal space, this space between the world and worship. This... I, I like to think just kind of for an analogy now, like this little colonnade area is kind of being that road divider that when you get off 147 on the Broad Street and there's always a couple familiar faces asking you for money. Um, think about, like sometimes you see that person and you recognize that person, but oftentimes you don't even see that person anymore or you make definite pains not to see that person. Or maybe like the foyer of like, Lowe's or something, where there's always someone asking you for something. But it's there, in that in-between space, that there's someone without. That there's a man suffering, and and so consistently suffering, that he kind of had a system where his friends would just bring bring him there every day, because he obviously wasn't going to be able to work, and this was... uh, this, this was what his life was. So they bring him to this, this foyer, this in-between space, because his life is so locked in, it's so determined. So he becomes part of the landscape of this area. I'm sure that some of the temple goers probably engaged with him, maybe even befriended him, tossed him a coin here or there, but I think after a while, probably a lot of them didn't even see him anymore. But here's where it gets interesting in this story. It says, Peter and John stared at him. <laughs> and, and then they asked him to return volley, like to look at, the, at them too. They said, look at us. And he looks up, and, and right there they lock on eye contact, and things start to change. Well, not quite yet. The man asked for money, because that's, that's what he's was there for. And they explain in what kind of seems like this post-resurrection carryover of the training they got from Jesus in Luke 9. Jesus gathers these disciples up and he pairs them off and he sends them out and he, he says he sent them out to proclaim God's kingdom and to heal the sick. To proclaim God's kingdom and to heal the sick. And he tells them, so I'm, I'm sure they're gathered around like, okay, we, we have our assignment. And then he drops on them, 
take nothing for the journey. No walking stick, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. Wherever they don't welcome you, as you leave that city, just shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. And then they departed and they went out into the villages proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. You see, they've been trained for this. They've been trained to usher in the abundance of God's kingdom with little to no resources. Like that's, that's how they've been trained to do this. They've been trained in their time hanging out with Jesus to expect a heck of a lot for God to show up and work with a kid's lunch, with two fish and five loaves, and that, that will result in full bellies and leftovers, like barrels of leftovers. This is what they're learning when they hang around Jesus. They're also taught here not to get ruffled when they're unwelcomed, when the cold, hard facts of how dependent Jesus wants them to be kind of slams in their face along with the door of, of where they're trying to, to be. They're also taught that proclaiming the good news and healing go together. Like, con like concrete telling people about what God is doing and has done and concrete making broken lives whole and broken bodies healed are tied together. We could say this is, this is a combination of restoring, telling this story, and restoring, being a part of God's restoration of all things, and that they can't be taken apart. I think a lot about the kind of evangelism practices that uh, some of us who grew up in the church have been exposed to, or, or parachurch um, that we've been exposed to, and and did anyone grow up with like Young Life or like like relation relational evangelism, right? Like it actually seems like kind of on to something that you actually um, I didn't I didn't do Young Life exactly, but I get the gist of it enough that you make friends and form relationships so that you can actually say hard things instead of saying hard things and expecting someone to like you <laughs> after you told them something. But, and I think there are some things about that where you kind of like create a lever that you can pull and that um, is probably not w even what Young Life people really want out of this, let alone what Jesus wants. But I wonder if some of us are, are so kind of, of cultured in that way of looking at things, whether we knew it specifically or not, that we just kind of intuit that like drive-by evangelism is a bad thing and that we shouldn't do that. But in the meantime, we don't commit to or invest in people enough that any sort of evangelism from us wouldn't be drive-by evangelism, right? So like, like we, we know we don't want to do the bad kind where we, where we evangelize people as targets or projects, but then we also don't cultivate these deep relationships that, that we have that sort, of, that sort of knowledge and understanding and capital with people that, that we, can, we can say hard things, but we can also share hard things that we are, ourselves are learning um, and understanding about ourselves and that God's showing us. 
So I, I think maybe the, the antidote to this is, is to, to commit further and, and to dig deeper into the, the people who you're already around, you're already with. And some of these, some of these people, like I don't think evangelism is necessarily only for non-believers. I think it's also really good for people who know the good news because it's really just telling the good news. It's not something you grow out of because the good news is good, <laughs> whether you've heard it or not. And, and, and so uh, if you find yourself surrounded by a lot of people who know the good news, this is a great way to hear the good news in a different pitch or tenor um, from yourself and from them. This is a good way to encourage one another and build each other up. But also, if you're around people who don't know this good news, it's really surprising how amazingly open and good this news winds up to people, and, and you just assume that, it, that, that it's not or that it couldn't be. I think another antidote is committing to a place because our relationships are not just with people, but they're they're to places and, and kind of the whole ecosystems that we find ourselves in. This is, these are the places of our, our residence, but this is also where we work and, and where we play. By drilling down and, and digging deeper, then, then, then we start to realize, I think, like these disciples, we start to realize that there is enough and it's already all right here. The pieces are right here, and I know this place well enough to know where all these pieces are and how to connect these dots. I, I might e actually even come to a better understanding of Jesus' good news for this place if I am more committed and more attentive to this place. Lastly, I think this sort of kind of rebooting relationship evangelism by deepening relationships I think it also, it also kind of helps us realize that there's no um, like prototype of what it looks like to tell this good news that we're not measuring up to, that, that we couldn't be or we couldn't do. In short, like, you're not doing it wrong if you're just doing it how you would tell the good news, right? Like there's enough resources and also you're the right person for the job because you're there and you've been there and you're going to be there, right? I think that's pretty exciting. And I'm not normally one to get excited about this sort of thing, but I think that's sort of exciting. We go back to the text and, and we see Peter's response. This is also a good... Um, a good maybe primer in um, if, you, if you don't know what to say when someone asks you for something or if you honestly do want to give them something and you don't feel like you have anything to give, this is a great primer. <laughs> Peter says, I don't have any money. And I, I think a lot of translations and maybe even a more closely translated text says, silver and gold we do not have, <laughs> Right? But he says, I'll give you what I do have. Like, that's, that's the primer right there. Like, give people what you do have. It says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, rise up and walk. Then he grasped the man's right hand and raised him up. He got involved with this man's healing. 
At once, his feet and ankles became strong, and he jumped up and began to walk around. He entered the temple. He wasn't entering the temple before. But he didn't just, he didn't just kind of tiptoe in. It says he, he walked, he leaped, and he praised God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him. Maybe they hadn't paid much attention to him in a long time, but now they recognize him and said, isn't this the guy that used to sit at the temple's beautiful gate asking for money? And they were filled with amazement and surprised at what had happened to him. This scene that ensues is, I don't know how to put it any other way, it's downright biblical what is happening right here, right? This man who is part of kind of the temple court furniture before, like people just didn't recognize him, he kind of blended in. Now he's, he's like the embodied uh, words of the prophet Malachi, right? The son of righteousness will rise on those revering my name. Healing will be in his wings so that you will go forth and jump about like calves in a stall. Do we have anyone from Iowa here? Joey's not here. Calves jump wildly, right? Like that, That's what this man is doing, and that is what the prophet is pointing us towards. So it's interesting that, that in response to this, that, that Peter, like everyone's freaking out and excited, and, and I, I mean, rightfully so. This guy is jumping around like he, he won the Super Bowl, and he's... He's like leaping. This, this man was getting dragged into the court, so he's, he has this new vertical leap that he is like testing out in the temple courts, right? And, and he hasn't even really gained a new matrix for what is going on. He was raised in Jesus' name, but he carries on praising the God of Israel because this is the God he knew, right? Like, we, we got to remember when Peter and John are going into this Jewish temple and, and this man is praising the God of Israel, like maybe it's a good reminder for us that, that all these, these big like standard bearer movement starters like didn't, didn't start their own thing. Like, like for instance, like Martin Luther was a Catholic priest and John Wesley was a good Anglican clergyman. And so we, we know them downstream as these big reformers, but oftentimes they're reform in their... Um, enlivening and their fulfillment that they bring comes within, deeply within an institution or a tradition. Maybe that's good sometimes for us to remember that if we want change and we want reform and, and we bring energy, that we, we do that maybe in a tradition, in something that already exists, and we leaven that lump. But he praises the God of Israel and and now it's starting to cause a scene, and many of these worshipers who had averted their eyes before are now looking at him, and his praise and his amazement begets their praise and their amazement because this sort of thing is always pretty infectious. His hurt and his lack was met on that threshold by the full force of God's healing in abundance in Jesus' name. That's how they're coming to hear the good news about Jesus, is by seeing a display of healing in abundance. Uh, 
I don't know if it was just me, but when we were reading that or when I was reading that this week, I kept, the thing that kept standing out was that name, that they named this thing in the courtyard, the beautiful gate. Did that stick out to anyone else? Like, and, and capital letters, right? It, it was like a thing. I'll meet you at the beautiful gate, right? And um, it, it made me wonder first what the deal is with that. And I think it was mostly just this very ornate gate that marked this threshold, this movement from the profane into the sacred and something that they could, that, that they could understand and realize. And, and it was very ornate, like gold and bejeweled to mark this entering into God's presence. But it also really stuck out to me and, and a lot based on some of the stuff we were talking about at our mustard seed group this week about how fitting it is that they called it the beautiful gate because beauty kind of does that, kind of mediates between kind of divinity and hope on one side and, and realism and, and, and just mundane, normal things on the other. And beauty kind of holds that hope and that realism together without being either sentimental or escapist on one way or, or brutal or, or hopeless on the other way. That, that this man had to be healed in this beautiful borderland. This place where wonder and word and hope and healing kind of all coexist and, and it's all a, a little bit out of our grasp how this works, but we're, we just kind of jump into it and are involved with this sort of beauty. This is the sort of place of excess and grace. Like it's, it's too much for us to even understand. And, and consequently, we, we find in this story, Peter and John enter into this space without anything, without silver, without gold, and there's more than enough in this place. It made me kind of consider this as, as like a like Irish uh, spirituality talks about thin places, this place of overlap. And it made me wonder, what are these beautiful gates maybe in my life? These places where there, there's just this, this beauty, maybe even especially in the midst of some suffering or some hurt or some difficulty or some conflict, but place where Jesus is and where Jesus is going to show up. Finally, as, as kind of the crowd builds and, and everyone's excited, it seems, especially by the rubric of, of relationship evangelism, that Peter has finally earned his right to speak to this crowd. Here's his big chance to make explicit what's been on display this whole time. God's in Isaiah 61 terms, God's good news to the poor, his binding up of the brokenhearted, his proclaiming release to captives and liberation for prisoners, this jubilee, this, this forgiveness of debts. He gets to talk about that name that he led with. In Jesus' name, rise up. That name that he focuses on, he has no time for locating anything good in his or John's own power or piety. He doesn't want it to get confused that this is something that he did or that he somehow had the know-how to pull off on his own. Because on their own, P 
Peter knows as well as anyone that they weren't enough and things with that man never would have changed. But when he stepped into God's mission in Jesus, when he stepped in, he and John, with humility and obedience and attention to detail, he beheld this man's face, that they tapped into the creative and redemptive power of God. And not some magic God. He reminds them that this is the God they know. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God with a long story that they know well, which has its climax in Jesus. In Jesus, God has done and is doing everything he always said he was going to do, and people are still trying to catch up to that and wrap their heads around it. We're still trying to catch up to that and wrap our heads around it. That, that phrase sounds so um, kind of like mean, and Gary, you read it great, but so mean when he says, you Israelites, and I don't think he was chastising them. I think he was trying to remind them of why is this so hard to see? You guys are Israelites. Israel called out of Egypt by a God who saves, and you're watching God save this guy, and you're surprised? <laughs> right? Like, this, this is more of a reminder than a guilt trip to them. But then he kind of turns that good news back on them. And I think it's, it's something that if it wasn't out of the lips of Peter, it would sound kind of mean. But if we remember Peter's story, it, it makes a little more sense. He says, rather than receiving and participating when God showed up in the person of Jesus, you denied him, you rejected him. The very author of this whole story was killed by his audience, is what Peter is saying. The ones who bear a message in their bodies also <laughs> were killed for it. Like, Peter was that one who ran out on Jesus. Peter denied associating with him. But now Peter got this new life. This resurrected Jesus shows up and says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Build my church. This Peter now became the rock upon which God's people would stand. Or think about this man on Solomon's porch. He's a witness. He's someone who bears this in his body. He's a witness to God's redemptive work. He's exhibit A in showing off what God's doing in this world. Where I also think about the Apostle Paul when he talks about witness. In that second letter to the church at Corinth, he gets to the point where he's trying to kind of back up some of the things that he's saying. And in a lot of, um, in like letter writing culture that day, you would, you would get a letter of recommendation. Really, you, you do that now too. You get someone to back you up or if you write a book, you get someone to endorse you on the back of the book. So if you say something kind of crazy, they're like, oh, well, that guy said it is okay, right? But Paul says... I don't need a letter of recommendation because you are my letter of recommendation. Because of what God has done in your life, God is real and God is reliable 
and God will continue to do things. He says, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us. You weren't written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. You weren't written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I think this is a little bit of what Leslie Newbegin was getting at when he says the only interpretation of the message of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. If you want to preach the gospel, join with others who understand the gospel because it's happened to them. Because that good news has happened to them. So now we get a feel for how Peter has restoried what they have known and what they've seen. He's opened it up and unlocked the key for them. The key to these neighbors. He's he's operated in that threshold space of what is and what might be. And and I wonder what amazing opportunities we might have for this sort of thing, just even this week as we practice this sort of proclamation, the sharing the good news. Like this might take place as we encounter someone who's hurting. Like, have your antennas up this week about those people that you stop seeing. And this isn't just people on the side of the road or at the grocery store, but these are the people in your lives who are so near to you and their hurts are so maybe obvious and maybe they ask for entirely too much of you that you've just completely screened them out and you don't see them, you don't hear them anymore and they're not... uh, Maybe they're not even helpable. Maybe you've tried that before and it didn't work, so you've stopped trying. Maybe, maybe instead of screening them out, maybe this week we look them in the eyes and treat them with attention and dignity and friendship and, and creativity, for Pete's sake. Like We're so creative with so many things in our lives. Like If we had a little bit of relational creativity... <laughs> And then, and then that we, we might share joy and amazement and, and worship. Like the response here is worship, that a broken life has been made whole. Like I think we're, sometimes we're also afraid of that because it feels like we need to hedge our bets. We're, we're a little too scared to pray outrageously, but we're also even scared to like when something outrageous happens to, to pinpoint it on something that God has done. And also, like, I think Peter gives us a good framework to, to see how we're connecting dots of, of, of what people know and what they've experienced and the ways that their history is attached to God and then what God is doing and kind of explaining that in a way that is, is real and exciting. That these, these concrete practices of things that, uh, that are before people's eyes, I think that's what the gospel is doing for us especially for those of us who believe. I think the gospel is, is helping us to live interesting and like distinctively Christian lives. Lives that people would look at and they would not make a whole lot of sense apart from the fact that the God we worship is real. Imagine that. Like, that, that that's also maybe a good self-check. A good self-check of, of the, the habits and the desires and the the things that I do in my life, and, and if they are too um, explainable, <laughs> if, if I do things because I'm that type of 
like 34 year old like white guy with an education and that's the only explanation needed like I might need to reevaluate the ways God has, is expanding my vision and my imagination for what he's calling me to you know I, I think that's the case with our with maybe our politics too that that our lead again is with our actions um, and maybe even some of our viewpoints but <laughs> that the the our sharing of the good news comes attached to the fact that there's not a whole lot of other ways to describe us <laughs> than than the fact that we have all these scattered viewpoints that fit into God's story in the way that he's remaking this world. I think there's also amazing opportunity for each and every one of us this week in very custom specific ways to continue with the good things that we're doing, but be able to narrate them, even for ourselves maybe first, and for our kids and for our, our friends, but also for others if someone were to ask you. Like, these are things like, that, like I always think, like, wouldn't it be cool, and this has happened, wouldn't it be cool, uh, uh, we've had garden work days on the side yard here as we prepare for this season, that a stranger comes up to one of our folks while working in the garden and says, why does this church have a garden? And then you somehow can story that and launch into the fact. Uh, I mean, there's so many angles and nodes to this. The, the way God works in us is a slow, patient way in which we rely by God's Spirit for growth and for sustenance. The, the way that we work into these seasons of, of fallowness and fruitfulness. And the way that God is... is is remaking this world that we want to participate with God like a gardener, um, doing, doing things and watering and then waiting and maybe even having someone else reap that harvest and benefit from that. If we could describe it that way rather than, I like to get my hands dirty, which might be true, and that's not a bad reason. But I think we can expand this. I, I think we can expand that when we're advocating for racial justice, that it's not just something um, that I've evolved on and that now recently interests me, but it's because that in Christ the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. <laughs> and in Christ I now can and should have friends that make no sense apart from the fact that Jesus is Lord, right? Or my family, even just this week, is is slowly entering into this early stages of adopting a child. Um, and I think there's some great, fun, good reasons to do that for our family. But I think ultimately, like, I'm mostly inspired by the fact that that is how God remakes us into his children. He adopts us and brings us into a family and nurtures us with other people, with brothers and sisters, but also with y'all, too. Like, that is so exciting, Right? And that's good news because that is what God is doing. And I mean, you can go down the list. This is why we write songs. This is, this is, there's better reasons for going to the gym than just feeling good. Like there, there's, there's the stewardship of this body that God cares about because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, you know... Whatever we're studying, we have so many students, if you're studying city planning, there's a good reason for that. There's a good reason. I mean, 
our divinity students, you should know how to say this, right? Like, there's no good reason to study theology, like, period, apart from the fact that God is God, right? So I, I, I'll, I'll close there, and I just, I just want to encourage you this week, um, even if for your confidence in, uh, that you need to start storing this to yourself before you do it to others, but I promise you if you start to do this to others, you'll be rewarded in it. You'll, you'll, that good news will take deeper hold in your own life and your own heart. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this good news. Good news that's far more than words, but no less. Lord, put those words of healing and hope on our lips that we might have a sure defense for the hope that is found within us, not a, not a defense like a, um, something that we hit people with or battle them with, but um, an apologetic, a, a reason um, that we are the way we are it's because of you. Uh, encourage each of us with, with each other's stories. Lord, we thank you even this week that we're in the middle of, of not just sorrow, but immense healing and, and, and hope with, with people in this room. Um, help, us, help us be eager to, to hear and to tell those stories. Lord, we thank you so much, and we pray all this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.